This is being his friend. Life is messy, so focus on being God's friend. I mean, we could sing all creatures of our God and King, and I could give you that thesis, and we could all go home, and we'd have a good day. All right? I love that song. Anytime I sing that worship tune, I just can hardly bear it. And then I come to a truth as simple as this, and it's at one and the same time almost too much to take and everything that I need. For the same is true for you today. Life is messy, so focus on being God's friend. How do I know life is messy? Because I have a kitchen. <laughs> do you have a kitchen? Is it like stealing your life? I had this moment last week where I was cleaning, and I said to Nicole, my wife, I was like, nobody ever told me that I would spend most of my life cleaning the kitchen. It's one of those things they conveniently leave out in high school. Remember home ec in high school? I don't know what they call it now. When I was in high school, it was still called home economics. Remember home ec class? They lie to you in home ec class. They do not tell you about diapers. They do not tell you about 2 a.m. feedings. And they do not tell you that your kitchen is from the devil. Like, they don't tell you that it's never going to stay clean. It's just one of those things. You just, you clean it, and then it gets messy again. And you're like, I guess I got to clean it again. And so you clean it again, and then it gets messy messy again. It's such a beautiful metaphor for life. Constant, unending, unyielding mess. I mean, what did they teach me in home ec? They taught me to make um, pizza on the top of pita. Did you make that? You took like a piece of pita bread and put this nasty tomato sauce and then some cheese and woohoo, you made a pizza. Like, that's what you really need to make it through life. They should have taught me how to run a cash flow Right? They should have taught me about a budget, and they should have told me about my kitchen and that it would never, ever, ever surrender. Right? My kitchen, Lord, I mean, how many dishwashers have you had to replace in your life? Because right? your dishwasher gives up the ghost and goes to see Jesus because it's like, uncle, right? it taps out. Life is messy. I need some serious changes to our uh, home economics curriculum. It needs a serious revamp. Or... Everybody could just read Genesis chapter 19 and apply its core lesson. That would also work. Here's Genesis 19. I'm going to read you the whole chapter. Read along if you want, if you have your Bibles. If not, just take a listen. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords... Please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go your way. They said, no, we'll spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. He made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you, and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. They said, This fellow came to sojourn. He's become the judge. Now we'll deal worse with you than with them. And they pressed hard against the man Lot, 
and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, it's the men inside, the angels, have you anyone else here, son and sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we're about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But Lot lingered, so the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. Lot said to them, Oh, no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. The angel said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah and towards all the land of the valley, and he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. Firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He's the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He's the father of the Ammonites to this day. (laughs) Good old Genesis chapter 19. No preacher would ever choose to preach this chapter. It's kind of why I preach through books of the Bible, because it forces you to deal with content that you would never in your right mind choose to deal with. It's intense, it's dark, it's difficult. It's probably the most technically difficult sermon I've written since the last time I preached Genesis chapter 19. Lot. We remember him from Genesis chapter 13, when he separates from Abraham. Abram is still Abram at that time, when they've come back from Egypt, where they went to sojourn during a famine. They come back to the land of Canaan. 
and God begins to prosper them. Their flocks begin to multiply to the point that Lot and Abram have to separate because there's just too many flocks and too much prosperity for one area. So Abram gives Lot the choice. He says, look, go wherever you want. Take whatever part of the country you want. Wherever you go, I'll go somewhere else. And so Lot looks down into the Jordan River Valley. And at that time, it was a fertile, beautiful place, watered by the River Jordan. He said, I'll I'll go there. So Abram said, fine. So Lot moved down into the Jordan River Valley. About a, I don't know, with all his retinue, probably a three-day journey, maybe four days, down into the valley from near Hebron, where Abram was living by the oaks of Mamre, his friend. Lot settles there, and Abram stays up where he'd settled. Then we see Lot again in Genesis chapter 14, when the kings of the north moved down from Syria. It's not Syria at the time, but it's Syria today. They moved down into what is Israel today, and they attack the kingdoms of the valley. They subdue them, and they take them all captive, including Lot and his family. Abram hears about it. I preached on this already. He travels north, defeats the kings of the north, rescues his nephew Lot. It's the second time Lot shows up. Lot lives in infamy, though, because of this chapter. I want to point out what he's doing in verse 1. He's sitting at the city gate of Sodom in verse 1. He's chilling at the city gate. The city gate was the gathering place for the elders of the city. It's very important to note that it was the elders, the insiders, the established men of the city who would hold court, literally hold court at the gate of the city. My dad and I were at the gate of the city of Dan last year, which is in the northernmost point of Israel. The city of Dan was visited by King David to pick up Michal, his wife, before it was called Dan. It was called Geshur in that time. The city gate is still there. So my old man sat down in the city gate. I was like, that's about right. The city gate, imagine, it's still there. It's this little kind of indentation in the rock face at the front of the gate. Epic. This is where the elders would sit. If there was a dispute, judgment needed, it would happen at the city gate. So I want you to get here that Lot is sitting where the insiders sit. It looks very much like he has settled into life in the city of Sodom. This is in stark contrast to Abraham, who's still living in a tent. He's eschewed the cities of Canaan. He's living in a tent. Why? Well, the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, tells us why. For he was waiting for a city whose builder and maker was God. God points this out through the book of Hebrews as a sign of Abraham's righteousness, that he knew the real city he ought to be waiting for, and therefore he eschewed the cities of Canaan and stayed in his tent. Whereas his nephew Lot is like, this is a nice-looking city. I'm going to settle right in. Abraham is waiting for a city whose builder and maker is God. Lot moves right into the city where he becomes an insider. One who can sit in the gates and pass judgment. We're talking about being God's friends today. You can focus on being God's friend by living like you're camping. Remember your father Abraham in his tent. Do everything you can to live like it. I know you may live in a house, and I'm not suggesting that we all you know, move to the lawn and live in tents. But treat your house like it's a tent. Treat your life like it's a tent. Don't take it too serious and don't put down roots that are so deep that when it comes time for you to get uprooted and go home to Zion, that you're uncomfortable about it. You should live in such a way that when it comes time for you to go home to Zion, you're like, yes, let's go. And you shouldn't have to purge much. Or your offspring shouldn't have to purge much. 
My grandma Kerr lived like this. My mom and I cleared out her apartment after she died. She had almost nothing left. I thought that's very appropriate. Because she waited for a city whose builder and maker is God too. Woo! All right, you focus on being God's friend by living like you're camping. Because heaven is your home, not here. So Lot's not doing that. He's settled into Sodom. He's sitting at the city gate, and then in verses 1 through 3, the two angels that we met in the previous chapter with God and Abraham, when they took the message to Sarah about having a baby next year, they've gone on ahead, as the end of last chapter told us, and here they arrive in Sodom at the end of the day. They show up, and Lot has the sense to welcome them and to offer them hospitality. The point from this is this. If even an ultimately sorry character like Lot recognized the divine life when it showed up and accommodated it, we ought to be a little worried about that. Why? Well, because there is a very good chance that we might be lower down the spectrum than even Lot was when it comes to recognizing and reacting in a right way to signs of the divine life when they show up. You feel me? Even Lot recognized there's something about these two guys. Welcomes them. Accommodates them. Sign of the divine shows up and he reacts appropriately. We ought to ask ourselves, would I recognize it if God showed up in my life this week? Would I even recognize it? And if I did recognize it, would my next reaction be to accommodate it? Is my posture towards the divine life one of accommodation? I think if you're honest, you'll know, like I know, that I, I fight with the divine life quite a bit. I feel quite awkward most of the time when the divine life presses itself upon my life. When God's imperative wars against mine. When he leads me in ways that I don't think make sense. As I saw Lot accommodate these visitors, it spoke to me in a way that led me to repentance. I need to be more accommodating of the divine life when it shows up. Maybe you need to do the same. Something you need to focus on. Especially since the divine life tends to force people to show their true colors. Let's read verses 4 through 11. Next slide. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. They said, stand back. They said, this fellow came to sojourn. and he's become the judge. Now we'll deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the angels reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Okay, this is the part you've all been waiting for. Let's talk about the sin of Sodom. Gang rape. That's what's in play in this scene in Sodom. Gang rape. This is not garden variety gayness we're talking about here. It's not. How do I know? 
Verse 4 says, all the people to the last man. Okay, literally, here's an English transliteration from the Hebrew. And mortals of the city, mortals of Sodom, they surrounded on the house from lad and unto old man, all the nation from utmost parts. Sounds like everybody. Does not sound like the 5% of the population who identify as LGBTQ+, decided it's time to party and act the fool. It says all the people. All right, in modern times, dating back to the Kinsey Report, the commonly accepted percentile of people who would identify as LGBTQ+, was set at around 10%. I don't know if you've read up on the latest research on this, but the numbers today are thought to be more like 5%. Now, you need to interpret the scriptures here through a commonsensical lens, which says that humans are humans and have always been humans and will always be humans. Therefore, it does not stand to reason from my reading that, you know, there was an era of the world when all of a sudden 100% of the population decided they were gay or chose to identify that way. Right? Does that make sense to you? People are people. They've always been people. They'll always be people. If we're landing these days on 5% as the number that is most commonly accepted in scientific and both social scientific contexts, if it's 5% today, it was probably 5% then. Do I know this for sure? No. But I got to tell you, as I read this, that's in the back of my mind. I read this and I see that all the people of the city have joined into this scene. And I have never seen a city where all the people would be joining into this scene because of their sexual orientation or gender identity. All the people. Also, by the way, if we want to really be literal when it comes to the biblical text, we're talking about angels here, not men. Huh. Right? So this, at worst, would have been interspecies sex, which does happen earlier in Genesis when the sons of God lay with the daughters of men bringing forth the descendants, the Nephilim, the giants, the great men of renown, a practice which God frowned upon and actually took steps to arrest. Gang rape, a sport. Two angels show up. What's our reaction? Worship and hospitality or sex Olympics? Okay, this is the question we ought to wrestle with here. The point for us, if we're looking to be God's friends, is this. God's friends don't treat sex as a toy. They don't treat it as a game. They don't treat it as a weapon. And they don't treat it as an act of worship. That's not how God's friends treat sex. His enemies do. And let it be said that they're fairly committed to their course of action. Look at verses 10 and 11. It's crazy. But the men reached out, the angels reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. Hear this. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. The angels strike them blind. Literally in the Hebrew, smote them with dazzlings. I love that. Smote them with dazzlings. And here's the operative point. The fools won't give up. 
How many of you would testify to the fact that if God struck you blind, you'd probably stop acting the fool? Amen? Right? Makes, doesn't it make sense? You're like, God in his kindness, okay, through the agency here of his angels, I recognize it's not God himself. This is his messengers, his angels, who act on behalf of God throughout all of biblical history. That's what the record testifies to. God in his kindness allows his messengers to strike these fools blind. And instead of stopping, they keep at it. In fact, they keep at it so much, they keep at it all night long, they wear themselves out groping for the door. The images of all these people just crashed out asleep surrounding Lot's house. They fell asleep still trying. That's not intense. So look, the, the truth is simple. We all struggle with sin. Okay, all of us do. The Bible makes this very clear. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Okay, in light of that, it makes perfect sense to quote an earlier passage in Romans 3. There is none righteous, no, not one. Why? Well, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Which is why, quoting 1 John, the blood of Jesus keeps on cleansing us from all our sin. In the English, it's rendered, the blood of Jesus keeps cleansing us from all our sin. In the Greek, it's a present continuous. The blood of Jesus keeps on cleansing us from all our sin. I love quoting that verse. I use it in the following way. I say, you know why the blood of Jesus keeps on cleansing us from all our sin? Because we need it. We need it. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. The blood of Jesus Christ keeps on cleansing us from all our sin. So here's the point. If God has struck you blind and you're still spending every last ounce of energy till you literally wear yourself out, doing everything you can to turn sex into a toy, a game, a weapon, or an idol, you're acting like a sodomite and bad things are about to happen to you. Let's look at verses 12 through 15. What happens in these verses? I'll just recap them for you. The angels say to Lot, you got any homies? Got any peeps? You got any people? Got any friends? Got anybody? We're, we're, we're here to save you because you're Abraham's friend. That's what's implied. And Abraham is God's friend. So the same pattern of friendship and family continues. That's sobering and also encouraging. The saving power of a God-fearing family is not to be underestimated. Got any people here? Go get them, man, because we're about to lay waste to this city. We're about to wipe this place out. Why? Because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. It's very interesting. In the Hebrew, the outcry against the city sounds like it's the city itself that has cried out to God for mercy. I always thought, like, who's crying out? Like, right? Because later in the story, God wipes out the whole river basin, except for Lot and his two daughters in the city of Zoar, where they went to take shelter which suggests to me that everybody in the river basin was deserving of God's judgment. So if everybody in the river basin was deserving God's judgment, who in the river basin was calling out to God, saying, you've got to deal with this because this city is messed up? It's powerful. It seems to me in the Hebrew that it's the city. The word is tzaka, literally the shout, the scream against this city has come before the Lord. 
And if it was the city itself, which I can believe because Jesus himself says if his followers keep silent, even the rocks will cry out. I don't find it hard to believe at all that the creation itself groans. Right? Waiting. You know what I'm talking about. So I, this is amazing to me. That we could so offend the earth in our relentless sinfulness that the earth itself might start screaming to God for him to step in and judge? It's powerful. Also very scary. The, the, the fit is about to hit the shan in Sodom. And the angels are like, you better go save some people because it's about to get ugly up in this joint. You heard? He's like, all right. So he goes out into the city specifically to find his sons-in-law. Okay, don't forget his daughters in this. You know they're coming back at the end of the chapter. i got to hurry up. These are the men who are supposed to marry his daughters who have never lain with a man, his two virgin daughters. These are their betrothed husbands. In Judaism, they've probably been betrothed for a long while. They probably have relationship. They know each other. Lot says, guys, these two angels are about to destroy the city. You've got to escape. And they mock him. They laugh at him. In the English, it says it seemed that he was jesting. In the Hebrew, it's like, they laughed at him. They blew him off. Whatever, man. You're a religious fanatic. So listen, the next time someone graciously points out your need of salvation, do not mock them. And do not even allow mockery to be born in the slightest way in your heart. I would recognize this in me as incredulousness. Someone speaks correction to me. I feel incredulous about it. I'm like, what? That's impossible. I may not react that way, but I just want to confess that that reaction exists in my gut. I got to squash that. I don't want to be like Lot's once and almost future son-in-laws who received God's gracious warning and laughed it off. If you laugh at God's grace, you're acting like a sodomite. Stop it. It's also very cool to me in verse 13 that God notices evil and that he's going to destroy it. This is troubling me the last couple days. For we're about to destroy this place because the outcry against his people has become great before the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. He's going to destroy it because it's evil. So I was thinking about my kids. Zoe will be here in the second service. She'll listen to this same sermon. I was thinking, how do you explain to kids that God would destroy an entire city? The only possible explanation is because it's evil. And we modern gentle people react to the idea of God wiping out a river basin. You know, and no matter how you parse the numbers, it's still offensive. There are Bible interpreters who spent a lot of time trying to, like, examine the projected sizes of the cities of the valley to say, it's not really that many people. Don't worry about it. It's only 27,000. Excuse me? I don't know if you're a fan of the sanctity of human life. It would seem wrong to me that God would wipe out one person. Wouldn't it seem wrong to you? Wouldn't the question be born in your mind, how could a good God do such a thing? The answer of the faithful God-fearer is, well, the only reason he could do this is if it was really important and the right thing to do. 
Because the Bible says that God always does the right thing. Always. He's altogether righteous and just. Which means that if he decided it was time for the cities of the valley to go, it was time for the cities of the valley to go. Now, we must speak about this kind of destruction in light of the New Testament teaching. All right? We have to, when we speak about God destroying cities, talk about the cross. And I have to say to you, this is the thing that made me cry in pre-service prayer, that the Father does not need to destroy cities anymore because He already destroyed the Son on the cross. That will preach right there. Doesn't need to destroy cities anymore because He already destroyed the Son on the cross. And He destroyed the Son for your sin and mine. Don't think that this is the Sodomites' fault. This is your fault. This is my fault. If you think the destruction of Sodom is pretty bad, allow the horror of that to turn your gaze to the cross where you see God the Son made flesh hanging there, suffering and dying in your place for your sin, in the Sodomites' place for their sin. And the wrath that you'll see outpoured on Sodom and Gomorrah in just a minute that wrath, plus enough wrath to cover the sins of humanity throughout all time, was poured out by God the Father on God the Son at Calvary's cross. It's the travesty of travesties. It's the hinge of history. It's the most important moment ever. Because, friends, if God the Father had not poured out His wrath on God the Son upon the cross then he would have to forever been pouring out his wrath upon our cities. Oh, man. So in light of what Jesus has done for you, you need to receive God's free gift of grace, and you need to walk in it. As it says in Hebrews 10, Therefore, brothers, sisters, Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Let us not be guilty of profaning the blood of the covenant. Let us not be guilty of outraging the spirit of grace by continuing to sin deliberately. 
Because it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. So God will not destroy the earth because he promised not to do so after Noah's flood. God does not lay waste to cities anymore because he laid waste to God the Son as he hung on the cross. So why, the question remains, is he allowing our world to continue to act the fool? Because he's patient. He's patient. 2 Peter 3 outlines this. He's allowing history to unfold because he's patient. Because it's his will that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so he is staying his hand so that the gospel might go forth, so that many, many people might taste and see that the Lord is good, might awaken to repentance, and learn what it means for them to love, serve, follow, obey, and enjoy Jesus all the days of their life. And so until the eschaton, until the end of days, when God the Son returns, Jesus Christ jumps on his white horse and comes back to judge the nations with a sword, to tread them, in fact, with his wrath, to tread the winepress of his wrath, and to judge the nations with a rod of iron. This is how the scriptures speak of Jesus in his return. Until that great and cataclysmic event, we are living in the time of patience, where God in his kindness is allowing, as the scripture says, the fullness of the Gentiles to come in. Which is why we're so focused on joining Jesus on his mission in culture to seek and save the lost. The only reason that God is allowing earth history to continue to act the fool is because it's his will that none should perish, and he's waiting for the fullness of the Gentiles to come in. Because he knows that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. As I close, look at what happens in verses 23 through 29. Almost done. What happens in verses 23 through 29? I'll just recap it for you. Literally, heaven rains hell on Sodom. Fire and sulfur. Brimstone and fire. Hell is rained from heaven on Sodom. I can't take credit for that awesome phrase. That's right out of Matthew Henry's commentary. Heaven rained hell on Sodom. We gentle Western Christians tend to think that hell is somehow divorced from God. That somehow hell is the antithesis of heaven. That somehow hell is Satan's domain and heaven is God's domain. And this binary theology comes into our life where we think it's God against Satan and who knows how it's going to go. Let me tell you, God is the Lord of hell also. Okay, Jesus Christ himself descended there in one of the accounts after his death, took the keys from Satan as part of his triumphing over that domain. Okay, God is the God of hell also. God's friends keep in mind, fourth point, that he's God and he's not to be trifled with. You know, it would serve us to preach scary sermons like this more often. Make sure you haven't been taking him too lightly. I am a friend of God. Wait for it. And make sure you stick together. Verse 26. It's tragic. 
But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a monument of salt. It's probably the fourth time in my life I've preached this sermon. I've never, ever seen this point before. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and became a monument of salt. And I thought to myself, what if Lot had been walking with her instead of in front of her, as was the custom in that backward time? If he'd been walking with her, if he'd had his arm around her, he would have sensed her agitation. He would have sensed her fear. He would have felt her beginning to turn to look back, and he would have said, honey, don't do it. Don't do it. I got you. I'm here. Let's keep going. You feel me? This is not just speculation. This is theology. God gave Adam Eve as a helper, suitable for him. Why? Because he needed it. God said further when he did this, it is not good for man to be alone. And since we know man and woman were both made in the image and likeness of God, we know that the mirror is also true. That it's not good for her to be alone. God made us for each other. He made us for, to- for togetherness. Walk together. Walk together. No, honey, don't look back. I'm here. Let's keep going. God's friends walk together. That's why marriage matters. This is why church matters. Don't forget it. Let's get to work. God's friends are remembered by God. Verse 29. Worship team, give me one minute and then come join me. So it was when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out into the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. God remembered Abraham. God remembers his friends. And we, God's friends, we remember as we come to the ugly culmination of this chapter, we remember that God continues to be at work even in our worst messes. Which is exactly what happens in verses 30 through 38. Lot and his daughters, virgin daughters, who he'd offered the previous night as bait to the crowd at Sodom. Virgin daughters whose husbands just perished in the conflagration. They moved to Zoar, but for whatever reason, the scripture doesn't tell us Lot is afraid to stay there. Very weird. He flees to the mountains, where he settles down in a cave. And here's daughters fearing that it's the end of the world. Right, from their perspective, do they know that the sulfur and firestorm over Sodom is just contained to the valley? They don't know. How would you feel if you'd just seen the entire Ruby Valley wiped out by fire and brimstone from heaven? And in Zoag, it's all Canaanites. And you're Jewish enough to know that you can't marry a Canaanite. That's a fate worse than death. So what are you going to do about this? Well, the only logical option is to sleep with our dad. So look, bad things may happen to you in life. This is one of those things, like, until you find yourself in a cave, getting your father drunk with wine, so you can lose your virginity to him, you know, it's not that bad. You're like, wow, you're really reaching. I know, but doesn't life get really difficult sometimes? 
It's incredible. Now look, here's where Jesus comes in. You know I wouldn't leave you without Jesus. No, I wouldn't leave you without Jesus. First daughter does it. Next night, younger daughter does it. Oh. This is also the last time Lot ever shows up in the Bible, by the way. Never hear from him again. He's a byword. His name lives in infamy. But the oldest daughter named her son Moab. That was good. Literally, from my father. I thought there was a baby that squawked, not a sneeze. So just so you know. I thought a baby was prophesying. So I said that was good, and then I realized that maybe it was somebody who sneezed, and they thought I was calling them out. So I thought it was a baby, just so everybody knows. She calls her son Moab from my father. Me of. Me from of. Father. Me of. Moab. From my father. And who are the Moabites? Well, the Moabites, they're a lousy bunch of fools who are now an extinct race, who are always Israel's enemies. Unremarkable in every way. Except that. <laughs> maybe they're not extinct. And maybe they are Israel. Y'all feel me? Maybe they're, you know what's coming? Maybe they're not extinct. i got to be a little loud. Forgive me. Maybe they are Israel. Because in Matthew's genealogy of Christ, generation one begins with Abraham. And it runs from there through the centuries down to generation 12. Where it is upheld and continued by Boaz and Ruth from Moab. The parents of Jesse, the father of David the king. Moabite blood grafted into the messianic line. A dynastic line that culminates 27 generations later in Joseph, the husband of Mary, in whom and of whom Jesus Christ was born. The one who is called Messiah. The Moabite line grafted into the Messianic one. This is the greatness of our God. And he redeems this awful moment. He makes something beautiful out of an awful mess. And that's just what he does. Which is why you... You should focus on being his friend. Yes. 